Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll get to know Tatiana Maslany. You know her as the Emmy-winning star of the science fiction thriller Orphan Black and as part of the Marvel Universe as the star of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Today, she joins me to talk about playing Jennifer, a monarch butterfly who suffers from acrophobia, that's a fear of heights, in the new animated film Butterfly Tale. We talk butterflies, Broadway, and much more. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to meet Robert McCallum, director of the Amazon Prime documentary, Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make Believe. It's an award-winning look at the life and legacy of the legendary children's entertainer, Ernie Coombs. First, though, let's get to know Academy Award-winning filmmaker Errol Morris. His film, The Thin Blue Line, placed fifth on the sight and sound poll of the greatest documentaries ever made, and he has, in his films, documented everything from the career of Robert S. McNamara, the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, and physicist Stephen Hawking, to a topiary gardener, a robot scientist, and a naked mole rat specialist. The Pigeon Tunnel, his latest film, now streaming on Apple TV+, Plus, is a look at the extraordinary life of David Cornwell, a.k.a. prolific author John le Carre. Through a retelling of his life, Cornwell examines the very essence of truth and how memory and manipulation play a part in how we shape our world and our perceptions. Here's Errol Morris. It's terribly difficult to recruit for a secret service. You're looking for somebody who's a bit bad, but at the same time loyal. There's a type, and I fit it perfectly. When I was in MI6, it wasn't enough for me. So what I did was reinvent the secret world and fill my own people with it. Maybe this is an interrogation. Maybe I am self-deceived. I don't know, but I'll answer any question you wish me to answer as truthfully as I can. In his memoir, he says, none of it's true, it's how I imagined it. So going in, were you hoping to sort of get beyond some of the imaginations, some of the uh, stuff that perhaps he misremembered and really get to the truth of his life? No. <laughs> I'm not saying that the pursuit of truth is unimportant. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's all important. But the goal of this movie was not to pin him to the wall like a butterfly. Uh, the goal of the movie is to explore with him how he sees the world. Mm -hmm. The fact that he tells you that his memories are often inaccurate, perhaps fraudulent, is great because <laughs> memories often are. But I was more interested in how he sees the world. How, why make a movie where you have one essential protagonist? Uh, often these movies are made, you, you put together 10 characters mm -hmm. talking about who is John le Carré. There's none of that. Because I don't care what other people think about John le Carré. I think the story is about what John le Carré thinks about himself. And the movie is constructed accordingly. Um, he tells you that he imagines the house where he was born, but the house where he was born is different from how he imagines it. And if I were to make a didactic movie 
where I would set up. He says this, but <laughs> it's untrue. It's that. I think that I would be doing the whole story an immense disservice. That's not to say truth isn't <laughs> important, but it's to say that the focus here is on something different. Sometimes truth is unknowable. I've well, heard you say that in interviews. Sometimes the truth may be unknowable, but we can't even know that. <laughs> we can't know that something is unknowable. We can suspect it's unknowable. Mm -hmm. You can investigate and investigate and investigate. I was involved in a three-year investigation uh, in Texas, in the Thin Blue Line, yeah. to try to prove the man who had been sentenced to death for the murder of a Dallas police officer was just plain innocent. Mm -hmm. He didn't do it. He wasn't there. And to prove that the guy who was the chief prosecution witness against this man was the real killer. So this is a story where truth is essential. It's central and essential. You have to know, mm -hmm. did he shoot the cop or didn't he shoot the cop? <laughs> yes or no? True or false? But here, you're in a strange landscape. Uh, and in making a movie, you want to try to figure out where the center of the story might lie. And here, for me, it's a question of what is history? Mm. There he is in Germany in 1960. Uh, the Berlin Wall is about to go up. All hell is breaking loose. And he makes a novel right in the crucible of that ongoing history. It's quite an amazing undertaking. Mm -hmm. um, and my chore is to sort of examine how he reacted to that history around him. The novel is part of that story, but there's a larger story to be told as well. I learned, for example, from the Pigeon Tunnel, I think it's chapter two or chapter three, he talks about, it's the very beginnings of the memoir, talks about how, to his amazement, major figures in the Bundesrepublik were Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> the second guy in the Bundesrepublik was Hans Globke, who devised the Nuremberg Laws, mm -hmm. which were an invitation, if you like, to what became the Holocaust. And David is appalled. It's interesting, the moralist in him keeps appearing and reappearing in his fiction, in his storytelling, in his life. And all of the spy who came in from the coal, which is the novel he wrote on the basis of the Berlin Wall, is an examination of good and evil and personality. And it's an extraordinary work, extraordinary artist. Lucky to be able to talk to him. He has frequently, I think, been dismissed just as they would always write spy novelist, not just novelist. And I think that's a, it, it, it's a it's a key thing. I think spy novelist. I think in the in the way that it was used suggested that perhaps he was lesser than a novelist. That he wasn't quite the artist that I think that we now recognize him to be. 
I've been told he didn't like being called a spy novelist. Mm. I never called him a spy novelist, so I'm not guilty. <laughs> his son says that uh, David knew that this was his swan song. Did that affect the way that uh, you interviewed him, the kinds of questions that you would have asked him? No, not really. No? No. But we all were aware of the fact that David was no youngster mm -hmm. and that time was running out in some way. Maybe it's running out for all of us. And he uh, was terrific. I mean, I keep thinking of this one example. I cite the example because it still amazes me. Uh, he says the cat on the... Uh, as the cat slept on the dog as mad as a story. Mm. But, um, and I said, well, the Carey version is the cat betrayed <laughs> the dog by sleeping <laughs> on his mat. Yeah. And uh, David says, without a moment hesitation, the cat was probably a double. <laughs> He's very, very fast on his feet, very eloquent. Um, an enormous gift with words and language accents mm -hmm. which we see in the film absolutely and I, I that i found uh completely charming completely disarming and was completely unexpected for me good yeah excellent yeah i had no by idea. by the way it was unexpected by me too when <laughs> i asked him to do it i didn't know he's going to do such a good job yeah yeah and he does it's almost as if he you, you almost see him slip into it you know, it's like a character that he, he's putting on Evidently the Evidently, when he was working on his novels, he would always vocalize his characters. Wow. Literally. Yeah. And uh, the sound of language was something so very important to him and part of his artistry. And part of, I think, the, the version of himself that he wanted to present. In the film, he says something about learning how to speak this way. I don't speak this way. I didn't dress this way. His father, the influence sort of taught him how to morph and become something else. And it's, it's a fascinating idea to live your life in that way. It is indeed. Yeah. And his awareness of how much comes from his father, mm -hmm. that whole idea of having a false space this this intimation that it's all disingenuous, mm -hmm. it's all made up, it's all false. And I suppose you asked the question, did I try to check up on the truth or falsity of anything? Um, for him, it is all false already. Yeah. And that is immensely interesting certainly interesting to me. At what point, though, do you think that the falsity of it, the, 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 the voice, the accent, the, the way with words, the clothes and all that, became the reality of it, though? Well, he wrote over 30 books. Yeah. So in that sense, his world did become very much real, at least on the page. Mm -hmm. And he was, as he says at the very end of the film, an artist, and I would say an extraordinary one. That was Errol Morris on The Richard Krauss Show. Find his film, The Pigeon Tunnel, on Apple TV+. It's a fascinating look at John le Carre, his work, and really delves into what's true and what isn't. 
Generations of Canadians grew up with Mr. Dress Up, the iconic children's show starring Ernie Coombs as the title character, a man who embodied kindness and empathy. My guest in this segment is Robert McCallum, the director of the Amazon Prime documentary Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. It's a film that takes you behind the scenes to reveal what made Coombs tick. Oh, here you are. You're here and we're here. I've got a good bat costume here to show you. Didn't matter what race you were, what color you were, what religion you were, what language you spoke, you watch Mr. Dress Up. Hi. One of the reasons I became an actor was because very early age, this person on television, an adult but not an adult, taught me that it was okay to let my pre-flag fly. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the great Canadians. The film took five years to make, so I began by asking Robert how he stayed so enthusiastic about the project over such a long period of time. Well, you know, when in this case, it's uh, the magic of Mr. Dressup, right? Literally, the magic of make-believe fuels you every day when you're kind of motivated by kindness and inclusion and community and just playtime. It's hard not to get excited and, you know, hearing stories from people that were on the show, people that grew up with it, it's... Every, every conversation, every instance, every event, it just reignites that spark within you. When we talk about kindness and empathy, those are the qualities that Ernie Coombs and Mr. Dressup really personified. And I have my one Ernie Coombs story uh, that kind of uh, speaks to that. I interviewed him sometime in the 1990s. I don't really remember when, but I told him in the interview that when I was a kid, I had written away to the CBC and in return... I was sent a black and white postcard that said to Richard from Mr. Dressup, best regards from Mr. Dressup, something like that. And I loved it. And I carried that postcard around with me for years. It moved from apartment to apartment to apartment until eventually I lost it somewhere. So I told him the story. And then a week or so later, I checked the mail and there's a letter from Mr. Dressup. And it's that black and white postcard signed to Richard. I hope you don't lose this one. And I just thought that was the nicest gesture, and it seems to be emblematic of what he was all about. Yeah, very much. I mean, just a little bit of effort goes a long way. It makes a little bit of an impact that you can't shake. And it makes you want to do good things in return and pay it forward. It's, it's immeasurable, the qualities that that show and that man had on, 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 the, on our world. Not just Canada, but our world. What did you learn about Ernie Coombs and Mr. Dressup that you didn't already know when you started this journey five years ago? That it was the real deal, as you discovered, that it wasn't an artifice and an act. And it's so relieving and satisfying to know that it wasn't a character, that he didn't have to put on a suit and costume. But he genuinely believed all those things, and those writers and producers and directors were able to work with him to bring out stuff that he believed in and, and fuel that whole show. Like, he was just a genuine article. And that is so rare, and in such short supply today. Like, there's... There's dirt on everyone, it seems, and as we're making this film, we're waiting for it, and there was nothing. And how nice is it to find that there was nothing, and just be satisfied with that? There are no bodies buried in the tickle trunk. You know, it's a bottomless trunk that never empties, as long as you have imagination, but there are no limbs or missing uh, people reports that we know of tied to it. I was surprised to learn that he didn't start doing Mr. Dress Up until he was 40 years old. For me, or at least when I was a kid, he was kind of ageless, and I never really thought about how old he was, but 40 years old is kind of a later stage beginning to something that went on to run for decades and have such influence. He spent the first 40 years of his life struggling every step of the way to really find his place, 
not that his demeanor ever really, you know, would say that he was down about it or depressed or anything. He was happy to do whatever, wherever, whenever, whether that's act in a play on stage for a scene and then go downstairs and paint scenery or build some props or, you know, to tour around and help out, be a puppeteer, you know, read some lines, do some commercial art. It's like he took those first 40 years of his life to be the Swiss Army knife that he had to be in order to be Mr. Dressup because you can't just pop anyone into that role. And so everything was the accumulation of all the skills that he had, jobbing around, filling in, and being a part of different things, and just being a people person. He was the host of a talent show in the mid-50s, which I think directly plays into him being kind of the host of Mr. Dressup and allowing people to have a platform to showcase their abilities on that show. Mr. Rogers and Mr. Dressup are often called the Lennon and McCartney of kids' TV. What does that mean to you? It just means it's two people that had a unified vision, that wanted to share a message that went further than anybody could possibly imagine, and it still felt, you know, decades after their passing and will likely never go away. You're listening to Robert McCallum on The Richard Krause Show. His film, Mr. Dressup, The Magic of Make-Believe, is available now on Amazon Prime. You can't shake a great Beatles song, just like you can't shake the smile of those men every morning as a kid. It hits your heart and it sticks with you, and you remember that. The echo lives within you even after the words are gone. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between Fred Rogers and Ernie Coombs. I think people know that they work together, but tell me just a little bit more about the relationship that you explore in the film. Well, they're best friends. You know, they're joined at the hip, and Fred Rogers was a pretty deliberate guy. He didn't do anything kind of willy-nilly. He was very precise and systematic in what he chose to do. He had the freedom to be that way. And so when he had the opportunity, he never wasted a, a single ounce of, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. But everything was deliberate. And so when Ernie Coombs comes to his, in his life in the mid to late 50s, he finds a kindred spirit that work together, that, that align together. It's a shared philosophy that children are important people in our society, not just the throwbacks that we need to distract with. And with television as a tool, it had to be more than entertainment. It had to be more than just pie in your face. I love a good pie in the face, but let's shove some meat in that pie. Let's give these kids something to chew on. And it was an opportunity. And when Fred had that opportunity to come up to Toronto at CBC, he chose Ernie. He could have picked anybody. He didn't randomly throw a dart at the board and say, oh, I'm going to take old Freddie up here or Betsy. No, he picked Ernie because he knew that this is the guy I want at my side as I'm trying to do this, especially when it's his first time being on camera and pulling Fred out of his comfort zone. Ernie had his back, and that's what he needed. Best friends, best man at his wedding, godfather to his daughter Kathy, and they stayed in touch throughout their entire years. In fact, in our film, there's a letter that Ernie writes Fred, and it's two months to the day that Ernie passed that he wrote that letter to Fred, still thanking him for putting him in the way of opportunity and still being just so appreciative and grateful of their friendship throughout the years. It's a pillar of our film to examine their friendship and how that affected Ernie on and off screen. Another name that's really important is Judith Lawrence. She was the puppeteer behind Casey and Finnegan. Tell me a little bit about contacting her and what you learned from her. Oh, Judith is awesome. She's my hero. I got to spend two amazing trips with her at her place on Hornby Island. I visited some friends, as you probably tell from having seen the film. Casey and Finnegan were around, and we had some playtime. She's just a remarkable person. You know, she's a strong person with very tight beliefs. And in the 60s, as a woman in the entertainment industry, that could not have been easy. A lot of people were quick to label her as tough or difficult 
or not the most pleasant to be around. But imagine being a puppeteer on a show for kids that doesn't get much attention because, hey, we just need something on the air and we're going to do our best with what we can. And a show that constantly gets budget cuts. If she lets off off the gas for any second, she's going to be walked over. So she had the, the foresight to know she had to be tough and she had to stick to her gut. And as a result, the show became amazing. You know, she talked about her relationship with Ernie and it was basically she talked about it through Casey and Finnegan because that was the rapport. They didn't, uh, you know, hang out off, off stage or off set, so to speak. They just had a really great connection on screen. And I think it's one of the unsung TV duos of our time. Because that show doesn't work if it's just Ernie by himself. He needs Judith. And while there's some amazing puppeteers that came in after, six of them to try to fill the void that Judith left when she decided to retire, it's not the same. There's just a witty banter and an, an intuitiveness that those two had together that dates back to Butternut Square, which laid the grounding for some real entertainment and educational driven for the full content. Well, Robert, thank you so much and congratulations on the film. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm a huge fan of yours, so this is a big highlight for me. That was director Robert McCallum of Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe, a documentary all about the behind-the-scenes inner workings of one of Canada's most iconic television shows, not just children's shows, but iconic television shows, period, Mr. Dress Up. Tatiana Maslany is a busy actor. You know her as the Emmy-winning star of the science fiction thriller Orphan Black and as part of the Marvel Universe as the star of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. She recently appeared on Broadway in Grey House, a thriller that the New York Times called an expert haunting that's a freakout. Today, she joins me to talk about playing Jennifer, a monarch butterfly who suffers from acrophobia, that's a fear of heights, in the new animated film Butterfly Tale, now playing in theaters. Here's Tatiana Maslany. So, the last time I spoke to you, I think, was for a movie called Two Lovers and a Bear. Was and it that long ago? It's been a while. And so, wow. I said, uh, you know, uh, what's coming up? And you said, I'm just going to be chilling hard. Is <laughs> <laughs> I was a different person back then. <laughs> well, it doesn't feel like you've been doing that because uh, Grey House on Broadway, She-Hulk, now this, they are all very different kinds of projects. So I have to just wonder what it is uh, that attracts you to a project because these are all so disparate and so uh, very different. Yeah, and I think that's that's always been the thing for me. If there's any like consistency, it's like finding something that feels like a departure from the mm -hmm. from the last thing or from the type of thing I've been drawn to in the past. Um I I mean I've always I've always wanted to um keep myself guessing as much as keep other people guessing. I guess if there's any communication between myself and like a a fan base or an audience that watches my stuff is like, I don't want them to know what it's going to be next, you know? And I, and, and for me, I always want to feel like, um, I'm more curious and have more questions about the piece I'm doing than I have certainty about it or confidence that I can do it or confidence that I know what it is or even how it's going to look, you know, um, even with like, with this show, with animation, with Butterfly Tale, like for me, animation's always been something that's turned me on just as a viewer, as a fan. Um, I think it's like voice actors are some of the most amazing 
scientists <laughs> in terms yeah. of what they can do, you know, and like artists in terms of their ability to tap into that place of childhood and of play. So it's always been a world I've been excited about and, and am very uh, reverent of too. Like, I know I'm stepping into a world that has deep roots mm -hmm. and deep training and art and craft to it. So it's, yeah. So I'm very grateful to get to, to try it. Well, you have done animation before troll hunters and that kind of thing. You, you've, mm -hmm. you've done the work before, but I always find it so odd when I speak to people about the process of making it, because as an actor, I would guess that you want to be playing off the person opposite you. It's, it's, uh, you vibe off them, whatever. But when you do animation, often you're just in a room alone saying your lines yeah. and being directed. So tell me about that approach. It must be different than the way you would approach any other role, probably. Yeah, in in like a lot of ways, it taps into that place of um, like prep and rehearsal a little <laughs> bit more like or like of, you know, being in my room by myself and not necessarily like coming up with like, I would never come up with like the way I'm going to say something, but maybe I would play around with a voice or I would um, uh, move or dance or express myself in my body in a way that that is conducive to animation in the sense that you are in this little, like, you know, kind of quiet little cocoon Yeah, being on the theme, <laughs> but like you're in a little thing where you're sort of um, playing around and able to, yeah, there's not necessarily that responsibility of like always responding to your fellow actor. Mm -hmm. You're creating a lot of that. Um, yourself. And I mean, I was lucky that um, Mina had recorded all of his stuff already. So I got to hear what he was doing and I got to respond to him. And the other thing I would say is that a lot of the animation was was done, which was a different process oh. than I'm used to. Um, so it it ended up being like a weird collaboration with the animators, what they had sort of imagine Jennifer doing, you know, so it was a different interaction. Yeah. So just on a very technical note there. So the animation is already done. So quite often voices are done and then mm -hmm. uh, the animation is done around that. And it's all about the lip movement. <laughs> so yes. in this case, I suppose that there was an extra layer of technical ability that had to go along with that because the facial expressions and lip movements were already done. Totally. And like, that's what what kind of made it like an interesting challenge in this way is that the freedom like it's always good to work within a constraint mm -hmm. as an artist i think that uh limits um and i think we've all experienced this in various ways coming up working as a working actor you have constraints of i have three lines to create this character <laughs> right. and i've just come on set and everyone else is warm and i'm you know nervous as hell and i don't know what the tone is or whatever you're listening to tatiana maslani on the richard Krauss show her new animated film butterfly tale is in theaters now i think any of those constraints can really build a kind of interesting uh, chemistry, you know, like there's something new that comes up when you're faced with those things, you have to work within a box. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so working on this, yeah, it, it did like involve, and I, and I've never shied away from like a technical <laughs> challenge <laughs> or a technical restriction, uh, as much as I am an actor who wants to be kind of in the mud and sort of like free it is fun to have those like limits and what it does is it like focuses things so 
uh, yeah, so it ends up being about my interaction with the animation, which is already something that I can see is so expressive and has such a character to it. So I'm taking cues from that. And really that becomes your scene partner. Yeah. I mean, acting is a very technical job. I think that people think of the artistic side of it, getting into character, doing all the things that you do, but you have marks to hit, you have to be in your light, you have to all those things and you have to make it look easy. So that's yeah. the, the, the tricky uh, part of that, that I don't think a lot of people take into account. Totally. And like, there's a relationship you have with like the camera operator or the focus mm -hmm. puller. And for me, those dynamics are really exciting to 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 foster because there is so much information you can get if you know what the shot is or you know when the focus puller is like racking to you or you have to kind of dance with the focus puller um aware that they're catching you and aware that you're being caught you know all of that is like i think what gets what gets so lost sometimes is an actor getting singled out for their performance you know, getting an award, getting a blah, 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 whatever. And it's like, God, there are so many factors. There's such a, a community that goes into making that performance or, and that's like the joy of, that's why, you know, it's tough when you're stuck on your phone or you're doing a self-tape into the ether. You don't have that. You know what I mean? Well, walk onto a film set and see that there's a hundred <laughs> people standing around uh, for a scene that looks on the surface, very simple, but it takes a lot of people to make that happen. Totally. Yeah. Uh, now, was this at least shot in sequence or I guess voiced in sequence? You mentioned earlier, you step onto a set, you're still trying to figure out your character. Everyone else maybe has been there for a while. They're warm, as you say. And it's interesting that often movies are shot completely out of sequence. So at least in this one, maybe you can start at the beginning and work your way through. And that must be a benefit of some sort. Yeah, totally. There's there's something very natural about getting to grow into a character, mm -hmm. you know, and and with that sort of linear progression, you do get to like for me, day one is always rusty, especially with voice stuff, because there's such an energetic requirement that isn't necessarily how I normally go to work, you know, and we're told <laughs> to be very natural and <laughs> yet animation's a totally different thing and requires yeah. a different skill set. So for me, like growing into that character of Jennifer as we went on, um, I started to find my voice and very similar to her, all of the fear that, you know, she's experiencing off the top starts to become part of who she is. And for me, that is, you know, very similar to my own trajectory with her. Tell me uh, a little bit about Jennifer. What do people that are going to go see this film, what do they know need to know about her? She's... Um, She's built to fly. She's built to be at these great heights without fear. And yet that is her biggest fear. And so this, this wonderful kind of uh, conflict exists in her. And she's also one of those, those I was going to say people, but she's one of those butterflies that can't accept the things about her that she that may that are limitations. And so she pushes herself. She wants to still go on the migration but she takes the path of a little bit. Uh, she takes, she decides to be the one who carries the like rations of milkweed. So she's able to be at a lower level, but she's still on this adventure. So there's always a, there's a sense in her that she wants to grow and that she wants to um, move past these fears. A lot of who she is and made her quite hard and quite defensive and sort of hard to get to know. 
I think well, the people who are most afraid are often the hardest to get to know. Yeah, you probably. Know? Well, because yeah. they don't want to reveal anything that might make them feel lesser than or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. And this movie is about facing fears. It's about embracing your uniqueness. Uh, yeah. It's about triumph over adversity. There's There's a lot of really good messages here for kids and adults, too, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I think what, what I love about it, I remember being a kid and watching cartoons obsessively. What, what were some of your favorites? Do you remember? Five, all the Fievel, <laughs> Fievel goes west, <laughs> an American tale, the secret of Nim, you know, right. these, it was always mice. And I was thinking about it when I was thinking about uh, talking to you and like how, obsessed I became with mice, mm. how I researched mice. I got to know what, you know, how they looked when they were babies and how they, how they grew and how they like, what, what, what made them a mouse. Mm. I was obsessed with it. And I think kids will watch Butterfly Tale and become obsessed with monarchs in the same way. And I hope that that's true. I hope that they, you know, research and get to know what a monarch's life is because it's such an extraordinary journey and they are an ex you know on the endangered species list they're uh, a, a, a creature that does an, the impossible which is fly 4,000 5,000 kilometers mm -hmm. to get to Mexico every year on this migration impossible these tiny wings that if a human being touches them they're destroyed you yeah. know what I mean so like how do they do this and and I hope that kids become just as obsessed with it as I did when I was a kid. Well, it's super cool. And you're not going to like this probably, but <laughs> you, in your career now, you have sort of the influence to inspire that, mm. which is a, a callback to your early life. And not a lot of people get to do that. Not a lot of people get to uh, have that full circle kind of moment uh, and entertain hundreds of thousands or millions of people while doing it. I mean, it's, it must kind of blow your mind a little bit, maybe. Yeah, it's totally wild, especially when you think about like that, that there is similar to the character I have. Um, like I get nervous to talk to people. I get nervous to be on set. I get nervous to be seen, mm -hmm. you know, and yet I'm an actor and I'm, that's my whole job. It, it seems counterintuitive, but it's yeah, totally counterintuitive. <laughs> and yet there's something, you know, in me that yeah. draws me to doing it. And I think a lot of it is that, that um, relationship, um, the communication with an audience and the ability to do the thing that that moved me and that taught me about life and that taught me about um to whatever that that mm. drew me into life was like so much through film and through cartoons and through all of that you like build your your personality around these stories that you that you were told as a kid and it's an amazing thing to get to do that you know with an audience, for sure. You're listening to Tatiana Maslany on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, Butterfly Tale, is playing in theaters now. Do you still make playlists for your characters? I know on Orphan Black that you did, there were so many characters that you were playing. Uh, do you still do that? And if so, for Jennifer, uh, were there songs that put you in the, in the right headspace? With Jennifer, I didn't have that because I think what it is often for me, it's like, the playlist will hold me in a space for eight months, you know, while I'm filming something, it'll sort of like be the sort of um, soundtrack of my life at that mm -hmm. point. And with Jennifer, I was, I was in there for two days, you yeah. know, maybe two days, but um, 
but, but that inspiration for me was much more about the visual, um, that, that dynamic with the, Mm -hmm. with the um, animators. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and have you unboxed your Emmy yet? <laughs> no. I don't see it on I've a shelf behind it. you I've anymore. I've looked at it. It's not here. <laughs> no. It's in a storage locker. <laughs> is it? It is. Yeah. I, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Put it on a thing? I know. Or wear it around your neck as a Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I, I saw uh, Paul Giamatti one time in Los Angeles at the airport, and I think it was... Uh, the night after the Screen Actors Guild Awards or something, and he had won for Sideways, I think. He was sitting in the departure lounge, and he's got uh, an old beat-up novel. He reads these big, thick uh, science fiction novels. Reading this novel. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, and a, a knapsack, but shaped like his award. He'd literally won <laughs> the award into a knapsack. It was like perfectly. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was incredible. It was an incredible I thing. And I thought, oh, that thing's going to be a doorstopper by the time he gets home. <laughs> <Really? laughs> That's so great. He'll melt it down to like, or he'll use it as like a book uh, book. Book, um, a bookend or something like bookend. that yeah, yeah but yeah. it exactly. it didn't feel to me like he was treating it with the uh reverence <laughs> that you might have <laughs> right <laughs> love that that's awesome i also well, want to know what he was reading i want to know, I know what, what he reads he apparently because i kind of looked him I, I looked it up afterwards it was a giant very thick uh science fiction mm-hmm. novel that looked like it had been around a bit like he had probably read it right i can picture times. like yellowed like you know when the, yep. the pages are yellowed yep. yeah absolutely that's mm-hmm. absolutely and kind of like those uh uh, very futuristic for the seventies kind of, uh, covers. covers? Oh you my know? God. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. I love yeah. those. We have like so many of those. And I swear I've picked it. Like my husband buys them because he'll read them and yeah. I buy them because I like whatever's uh, happening on the cover yeah, and assume too. I will like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was lovely to see you. Thank you for doing yeah, you this. Too. Yeah. Thank I appreciate you so it. much. That was Tatiana Maslany on The Richard Krause Show. Check out her movie, Butterfly Tale, now playing in theaters. Big thanks to Tatiana for coming by. Big thanks to Errol Morris for telling us all about The Pigeon Tunnel, a movie you can now see on Apple TV+, and Robert McCallum for letting me reminisce about Mr. Dress Up and his film, Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe on Amazon Prime. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, and stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.